The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. Thank you so much for being here. I know you have other options. There are at least seven or eight other podcasts on the internet, so I appreciate you being here. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. This is episode number 45, and I have been remiss. Now, one of the features I have in my blog is Friday Questions, where I ask you to ask me anything you want to know about entertainment, show business, life, dating problems, whatever. And I said I would, from time to time, answer them as well on the podcast. And it's been like months since I answered a question. So I'm going to try to do more of these in the future. And I thought today I would start off by answering a couple of questions. And then I want to address the World Series. And the fact that, as you know, I'm a longtime Dodger fan How do I feel about the Dodgers losing? And how do I feel in general about being a sports fan? And I know being a sports fan can enrich your life, but it can also destroy your life. Anyway, I'll talk about that. So a lot going on. I'm going to start answering questions right now. Hollywood and the Okay, here is another Friday question, whatever day you happen to be listening to this. It's from Tyler, who asks, Do sitcom directors tend to be more amused or irritated by repeated takes being blown by one or more actors in a scene laughing and giggling? Have you worked with any actors who got irked by co-stars who repeatedly did so? Well, Tyler, actors rarely get the giggles. Uh, They generally have tremendous concentration. So when it happens, it's usually very amusing to all concerned. And studio audiences absolutely love it. When I direct and this happens, I usually just give the actors a few minutes to regain their concentration, well aware that it's uh, still going to take a few more takes before they can get through the line. You know, sometimes something will strike an actor funny and he just gets the giggles and he'll do the line five, six, seven times and he'll just break up. But it's usually infectious. So when that actor does it, then all of the actors do it. And again, you really just have to settle everybody down, take a couple of minutes. There have been a couple of times when I've just moved on and went back and just picked up that particular section of the scene 
after the audience left and, you know, after a few hours, they'll probably be able to do it in one or two takes. Now, I remember one time on Cheers, we used Tony Shalhoub as a waiter and he just pulverized everybody. Yes, it resulted in delays, but boy, was it worth it. There was an episode of Frasier that I directed called Roz and the Schnoz. If you haven't seen it, go find it. It's truly one of the funniest episodes. And it's not because of my directing, but it is one of the classic episodes of Frasier. And that is the one where, remember, Roz was pregnant. She was going to meet the parents of the father. And they came to dinner at Frasier's. And there was a a lot of talk about how you can kind of get a sense from the parents just how the baby is going to look. And these two parents each had giant noses. And, of course, the issue was, was her child going to have a giant honker like that? Anyway, it was very funny as we were rehearsing it. And I knew the audience was really going to love it. And I told my camera operators to just stay with whoever they were shooting at the time if they were about to lose it. In other words, the camera operators have assignments and there may be like a line cue. And after David Hyde Pierce says, Frazier, I want to see you for a moment. Well, that camera gets off of David Hyde Pierce and goes to another assignment, maybe of Kelsey Grammer. But in this case, I said, if an actor starts breaking up, don't leave him. Just stay with him. We'll go back and pick it up later and get the correct shots. And so some of the shots that we ended up with in that show were absolutely priceless because you can genuinely see the actors trying to hold back the fact that they were just hysterical looking at these two actors with the huge noses. And I have to say, the two actors, it was Kevin Kilner and Jordan Baker, who happened to be husband and wife. And Kevin, of course, also happened to be the star of one of our series, Almost Perfect. But the two of them, somehow, with amazing concentration, never broke. They stayed in character the entire time. And there was no actor that I've ever worked with who had greater concentration than David Hyde Pierce, but even he was about to explode a couple of times. And I also had a similar situation where I was directing an episode of Just Shoot Me, and there was orangutan on the show. And of course, those guys are a little unpredictable. And the same thing I said to all of the camera crews, if the monkey does something really weird or different, stay with him and we'll pick up any pickups a little bit later on. And there was one scene in particular. Oh, and I said to the actors, just try to stay in character. Just try to react to whatever the animal is doing, but stay in character. So there's a scene where Wendy Malick is walking the orangutan into the office, and she goes up to the counter where David Spade is. And as they walk to the counter, the orangutan... (laughs) lifts up Wendy's dress 
and just peers right up between her legs. God bless Wendy. She stayed in character, and I just can't tell you how funny that was. Another time, she had to walk him across the set, and he grabbed a chair along the way and was dragging this chair. And when you see it, you say, wow, how did you get the monkey to do that stunt? It's just so funny. Well, it was just one of those things that happened. But again, I told the camera guys, if you see something that's really golden, just stay with it. The actors, most of the time, can keep their concentration and keep it together. Although there are some actors who are better at it than others. I know Jimmy Fallon used to break up all the time on Saturday Night Live. And here's a a sheepish confession. You know, there used to be network specials that aired these G-rated bloopers. And whenever they would air a blooper from one of my shows, I would get a nice royalty. So anytime there would be one of these bloopers, and I had a few of these on Wings, where uh, at one point Crystal Bernard has a cake and drops it, Oh, just great stuff. And anytime that happened, you figure that the director's first thought would be, oh, no, now I got to do another take. It's going to take 15 minutes. No, I was thinking, oh, that's probably about $750 when Dick Clark uses that on his blooper show. Harvey Corman was a gifted comic actor, and he was part of the ensemble of The Carol Burnett Show back in the 70s. And he had a fellow cast member named Tim Conway. And Tim Conway could always break up Harvey Corman. And what they often did on The Carol Burnett Show, which was a variety show, is they filmed two versions of it. They would have like a five o'clock filming. And during those filmings, Tim Conway would play the sketches completely as written. And there would be an audience present, and then the audience would leave. They'd bring in a new audience after dinner. At 8 o'clock, they would reshoot the show. And sometimes Tim Conway would stray from the sketch in order to break up Harvey Corman. And it usually worked like a charm. And some of those scenes... Uh, were just so priceless that they decided to use them instead of the actual written sketches. And there's one in particular, and if I've ever given you a homework assignment, this is it. Go to YouTube and look for the Carol Burnett Show dentist sketch with Tim Conway and Harvey Corman. Harvey Corman just cannot keep it together. I guarantee you, I swear to you, you will laugh hysterically when you see that bit. It is maybe the funniest sketch I have ever seen in my life. And there is no way that I can watch that sketch. And I've seen it, God, 15, 25, maybe 30 times. There's no way that I can watch that sketch without laughing hysterically. So go find it. On YouTube, Carol Burnett, Dennis Sketch, or Tim Conway, Dennis Sketch, it's there. 
It is unbelievable. Now, do actors get irked when other actors do this? Generally, no, because all actors go up on lines. So, you know, David I. Pierce goes up on a line one week, and then Kelsey Grammer is going to go up on a line the next. It just happens. Sometimes there are lines that you just have a mental block, or sometimes there are lines that you just can't get out for whatever reason. You trip over your tongue and the more you try, the harder it gets. And once you get to take six and take seven, it gets harder and harder. I know on Golden Girls, I wasn't part of Golden Girls, but from what I understand, Stel Getty had trouble learning lines and it used to drive some of the other cast members like B. Arthur and Rue McClanahan and Betty White a little crazy. But by and large, actors are pretty forgiving. And when there is a studio audience, it really does kind of break the tension. And it's one of the things for the studio audience that makes going to a TV taping so exciting because you get to see something that you'll never see on television. And usually actors will have savers for it. I know Tony Randall would always turn to the audience and go, at least I didn't say shit. But if a couple of actors go up on lines hey, uh, what the heck, it's it's fun, it's a comedy, you're doing show business, <laughs> so what? So a guy goes up on a line. In a sense, that's the beauty of doing a multi-camera show in front of an audience because as opposed to a play where you get one chance to do it right, if you screw up, you can do it again. So actors tend to be a little bit looser. So that is the answer to that question. Coming back with more right after this. So this one comes from listener Bevo, who asks, why did you guys leave MASH? And the reason is, well, we left at the end of season seven. And when MASH began back in the early 70s, Larry Gelbart and Gene Reynolds, the creators of the show, spent an awful lot of time doing research. They interviewed tons of doctors and nurses and corpsmen and people who had spent any time at all in Korea during the conflict. And all of those interviews were transcribed. Most of the stories came from those particular interviews. And obviously, they were altered a little bit for creative effect. But still, most of the stories that you see on MASH all come from research. I think it's one of the reasons why the show is so good and why it is so authentic. Well, by the end of season seven, we had pretty much picked those bones clean. We had done a few subsequent interviews, but again, we're starting to hear the same stories because people had the same experiences. David and I were the head writers in year six and year seven, and back then we had very small staffs. I mean, that really started at the beginning when the real writing staff of MASH for the first four seasons was Larry Gelbart. 
he pretty much wrote the entire series for four seasons. How he did it, I do not know. It's why he is a genius. It's why he is Mozart. We would be fried. Still, we had uh, a couple of other people on the staff pretty much helping out for rewrites. But David and I, especially season seven, pretty much wrote or rewrote every episode of the season. I think we wrote uh, seven or eight, maybe nine of the episodes ourselves and rewrote everybody else except Alan. We didn't rewrite Alan too much. We just kind of dusted his scripts off a little bit. But everyone else we rewrote extensively. David and I also came up with all of the stories. MASH is very difficult to plot. Usually we had two to three different stories going on at the same time, and they all had to dovetail and come together at the end. And like I said, it was pretty intricate. So instead of trying to explain the theory and the way we work to other writers who we had sent out to do scripts, it was easier to just come up with a story ourselves, write the outline ourselves, and then just talk the writer through it and send him off to do his first draft. So that meant through the course of a season, and we did 25 episodes in one year, and we filmed them from July 4th until Christmas. Now, by comparison, today, a half an hour single camera show, and maybe they'll do 22 episodes instead of 25, and they will be filming from the end of July until the end of March. Well, we did it all in six months, so it was just a sprint. We would have two to three stories, like I said, in each episode, so that meant between 50 and 75 different stories were used each and every season. We got to the end of season seven, and we figured, you know what, we have done every hot show, every cold show, every visiting general, everyone has slept with everyone else, we've had every kind of shortage, any kind of leisure activity has been interrupted by uh, helicopters with casualties. We had pretty much, we thought, exhausted any story potential that we had. And also, at that point, None of the characters could do anything that surprised us. Uh, We pretty much knew how every character was going to react in every situation. And the one problem with MASH, the one conceit... Remember, MASH lasted 11 seasons, but the actual Korean War lasted about three years. So (laughs) MASH lasted like three and a half times longer than the actual conflict. And we had to keep the 4077 in the same time, in the same space. Now, normally when you have a situation comedy and it goes over a period of seven, eight years, well, characters get married, characters have kids, they move to different apartments, they change jobs. There are things that you can do to just kind of keep the show fresh. But with MASH, we were sort of locked into this time and place. And so at the end of seven seasons, we were, like I said, pretty fried. And then NBC came along and made us a big, sweet deal to do two pilots, one of which they promised to make. So we decided to leave, although we did come back in season eight and we wrote the two-part 
Goodbye Radar episode, which was his swan song, and it was our swan song as well. And looking back at it, we probably could have gone one more year, but the series lasted three and a half seasons after we had left. So even if we had stuck it out and done one more year, we still would have been in the same spot because there's no way we could have done three and a half more years. So that's why we left MASH, although I will say, and I, and I have said it all along, that I could not be more proud than I am of being associated with MASH. I mean, that is like being with a Super Bowl winning team year after year after year. And I remember a number of years ago on 60 Minutes, there was a feature about ageism. Writers were saying in order to get work, they were taking their MASH credit off of their resume. And my feeling is, boy, the day I have to take MASH off of my resume is the day I quit the business and sell ties at Macy's. As a sports fan, you are expected to live or die by your team. Or if you're a Seattle Mariners fan, die and die by your team. But the point is that you ride the highs and you suffer with the lows. And it is a long-time commitment, a lifelong commitment in many cases for you and a particular team. But the question is, at what point does it start ruining your life? And I have been, as a lot of you know, a longtime Dodger fan. Not only that, but I worked for the Dodgers. I hosted Dodger Talk for eight years on the Dodger Radio Network. So I have like bled Dodger blue since the Dodgers first came to Los Angeles in 1958 and I was a a little kid and I was enamored by the sound of Vin Scully and all of the great Dodgers and of course it didn't hurt that the second year that the Dodgers were in LA they won the World Series. So it's like, oh, okay, this is easy. Yeah, well, they haven't won a World Series since 1988. And it continues. But there was a pivotal point in my life, and it really changed me as a sports fan. 1962, it was the first year that the Dodgers were at Dodger Stadium. I was 12 years old, and they were having a dream season. They were pretty much leading the National League wire to wire. And that was the year that Sandy Koufax really came into his own and Drysdale was winning 25 games and Maury Wills was breaking Ty Cobb's stolen base records and Frank Howard was hitting 35 home runs. Tommy Davis was the batting champ. Like I said, it was really a dream season. And then it all came crashing down the last couple of weeks and the Giants caught him. And it resulted in a three-game playoff. And the Dodgers lost the first game. They won the second. And the third game, the elimination game, was at Dodger Stadium. And the Dodgers were leading 4-2 to two going into the ninth inning. And the Giants scored four runs. And we're talking the hated San Francisco Giants. Partly because Dodger reliever Stan Williams was wild and walked in a bunch of runs. Dodgers lost that game. 
They lost the pennant and the Giants went on and eventually lost the World Series to the Yankees. But I was devastated that night. I was so crushed that I couldn't eat dinner. I was inconsolable. And then about 8 o'clock at night, like one of those aha moments when I thought to myself, wait a minute. What the hell do I care? I mean, at the end of the day, this doesn't change my life in any way. I'm not making any extra money out of this. I'm not getting any kind of a contract. What does this mean, you know, to me? And at that moment, that very instant, I changed as a sports fan. And yes, I remained a fan, but never again did I allow myself to be so distraught, so paralyzed, and to, to put my, my fortunes in the hand of an athletic team. And that has served me very well. So when the Dodgers lost to the Houston Astros... By the way, as much as I I love the Dodgers, I thought the Astros were the better team, at least during that seven-game stretch. But still, I was disappointed, and I just turned off the TV and went and did something else, (laughs) you know? It's like I I was able to eat dinner, and I, I think that's kind of what you need to do. Okay, sure, I throw some furniture around and break things a little bit. But hey, everybody does that. But the point is that you have to be a sports fan in perspective. Because if you are a longtime fan, over time, your team's going to win. You know, there's going to be parades. It's going to be very exciting. You're going to see these guys pouring champagne on each other's heads. And then there's going to be times when you're crushed. You know, you're going to be a Boston Red Sox fan, and the Yankees are going to come back, and Aaron Boone is going to hit a home run and destroy your season. And then Boston is going to come back the next year down by three games in the American League Championship Series, and they're going to come back for an improbable victory and go on to win the World Series. Okay, crazy things happen. And another indication for me was game five of the World Series, and that was that Sunday night marathon that the Astros won 13 to 12 in Houston. Well, at the time, I was in New York, so I was on the Eastern time zone, and I stayed up until 2 o'clock in the morning. And it was a wild-ass game. And when it was over... Yeah, I was disappointed that the Dodgers lost, but I was so exhilarated. My primary thought was, wow, that was a great ride. That was a really fun baseball game. So it's like I'm a baseball fan first and then a Dodger fan. And I think, again, for all of the Dodger fans who are still smarting, uh, I think you got to take that perspective, okay? I mean, Vince Scully, for 67 years, called Dodger games, 
many of those seasons ended in heartbreak. And he always said that the Dodgers do it the hard way. And we kind of took that to be the case. In other words, yeah, love them anyway. Well, I don't think the Dodgers are unique in that at all. I think all teams at times do it the hard way. But for all you Los Angeles Dodger fans, I know it's going to be a very long winter, but you still have the Los Angeles Chargers. Oh, one final thing about that playoff game in 1962 that the Dodgers lost to the Giants. So years pass, and it's now 1992, so we're talking 30 years later, and I'm broadcasting for the Seattle Mariners, and we happen to be in Kansas City. And I'm in the press box dining room, and my broadcast partner, Dave Niehaus, comes over with a scout. Dave knew all of the scouts. Uh, Dave knew everybody. So the scout sits down, and Dave introduces him to me. Hey, this is Stan Williams. And Stan Williams extends his hand, and I had a tough time shaking his hand. I'm thinking, Stan Williams, you walked all those fucking guys. But I did. I, I shook his hand, and... Um, you know, and he, he, he seemed to be like a, a really nice guy and, and everything, but, oh, man, old wounds. That dinner I was able to eat, actually. Actually, several dinners because the food is really good in Kansas City. Anyway, that's my rant on being a sports fan. Back with more right after this. All right, that will do it for episode number 45. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, and Randy Thomas. Now, if you have a question, and I am going to try to answer more of them, honestly, you can always email me at hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Again, that's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Ken Levine. I'm also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. And if you could... Still, I would love a five-star review. For whatever reason, they say that really does help. Okay, thanks so much for listening. I will see you again next week. Bye-bye. Hollywood and Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, 
planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.